Tyler Smiley. And I'm John Morrison. And this is the Rooted and Grounded Podcast. Rooted and Grounded is a ministry of Lakewood Baptist Church that creates theological content to grow the church in our knowledge of God in order that we would grow in our love for Him and for our neighbor. Check out more at rootedandgrounded.co. Well, hey John. Tyler. I didn't know how to start this one, so I just thought I'd start with a formal greeting. Mm, very good. Uh, I have an update from our listeners. Okay. Uh, one of our listeners, to whom I happen to be related by marriage, uh, she is going on a car trip today and was like, oh, I'm going to put on some Rooted and Grounded. Yep. But if I get too tired, I might have to switch it. Apparently, my voice oh. puts her to sleep. Yeah, that's... It, that's sort of hurtful. That That's... Well... Wake up! <laughs> oh wait, no, it's not this one. It'll probably not be this one. It won't be this one. Yeah, maybe on our drive home, sure we'll listen oh, to this okay. one. But uh, so we, I think I just need to bring a little more energy and enthusiasm. Bring some, bring some more punch. Yeah, that's the that's the, the feedback I've been getting. Okay, all right. A little fierier. Get fiery, John. I need to read the Old Testament prophets. I need to. Yep, I can see the flames in your eyes mm, already. I know you're mm, feeling. That's it. me. That's me. <laughs> that's you. And um, it's good to be here. It's good to be back. We're in a different book of the Bible this week than we were last time. Who organized this series? I think you did. No, it got changed. I mean, I had a hand in this, <laughs> I like, I'd like to say, but I will not take full credit or <laughs> responsibility, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, if it's going very well, then you would be more prone. I will share the credit. Okay. I might share right. the credit, but <laughs> I also will not, I will also share in the blame. That's uh, right. It's been a great series. It has been very good. For those of you who are, haven't been or are not attending Lakewood or listening online, or um, you know, for all of our worldwide viewers, say or listeners, even listeners who may not be in Gainesville, Georgia, um, we're in a series called Wisdoms from, "Wisdom from a Pastor's Heart," and we're just taking on different topics throughout uh, this five weeks. And Dr. Tom, this past week preached on Colossians 1, and I'm particularly excited about this discussion, Colossians 1, and the city is called Colossae, or Colossae, or how do you pronounce it? I really try to avoid pronouncing it at all costs, but uh, I would say Colossae, if it pushed. I think pushed. I would too, Yeah, but uh, that's neither here nor there, and Colossians 1 is said by some, just some commentators, to be some of the highest language attributed to Jesus Christ in all of the New Testament. Hmm. What do you think about that? Just some of the highest language about Christ in the New Testament. Yeah. Well, I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah. Uh, it is very high. Yeah. Uh, but I... It's hard because we're coming out of Ephesians, which is also, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing for us is that Paul probably wrote Ephesians and Colossians at about the same time. Yeah, that's right. And they share a lot of, so they're very, very similar in just their high view of Christ mm -hmm. uh, that we see, yeah, really throughout both letters. But certainly this passage we looked at is so clear that Jesus is God. Yeah. And Paul goes to great lengths here to emphasize that. Yeah. what that means for us and for our salvation. But yeah, certainly one of, the, one of the high points about who Jesus is in the New Testament. Another one of Paul's prison letters, 
Finds himself in prison a lot. Seems to happen a lot. And uh, it, it does have some striking similarities to Ephesians, doesn't it? It does. And I think the general sense is that they were written at the same time. Although there's a chance Colossians might have been written earlier, if my memory's serving me correctly. There's a chance. There's always a chance. There's always a chance. So you're saying there's a chance. So you're telling me... That's actually kind of interesting to think about. Let me just think about that for one second. Hang on a second. Pull that thread here. Let me pull that thread for a second because... Let's just let me let me nerd out here for a second. Mm, it's hard to keep you. <laughs> he was in prison several different times. Paul was. He was in prison in Philippi when uh, <clears throat> after Lydia's conversion, right in Philippi, mm-hmm. and then he and then at the end of his end of the third journey, as he's getting back to Jerusalem, he's in prison there, and then into Rome, still under house arrest, which is probably when most commentators think like the the prison letters were written. Um, but there's a chance he was also in prison in Ephesus, apparently. And I think it's because in Corinthians, he says something about he fought with wild beasts in Ephesus, which is often a, a, um, what do you, is like an idiomatic phrase and like a, a saying for be like uh prison guards oh. wild beasts sort of thing um which came out in one of the letters one of the early christian letters i think it's polycarp see that i'm i'm almost only halfway nerding out cuz i should know all of this i'm trivia. a little disappointed that you're going to bring this trivia to the table but not but know not have fully. yeah i uh, know but that's okay i think it's polycarp he talks about he him talks being about in prison in Ephesus. Yes, fighting the Roman. Well, no, no, fighting like the beast and and the Roman, the the beast oh, that I fought against. Okay. And using that language of okay. Roman soldiers as Roman guards and prison guards as beasts or this sort of thing. And I think there's a reference in maybe maybe First uh, Corinthians, I think. So, anyways, there's a chance <laughs> in a roundabout way of saying Colossians could have been written very early. Oh, oh, here's why. It's, it's coming back to me now. Here's why. Okay, this is fun here. Because Colossians also mentions Onesimus, mm. right? Which is the one that he writes to Philemon about. And when he sends Philemon's letter, he talks about wanting to come back to visit Philemon. Mm-hmm. And I think some commentators have said, if Paul's already in Rome, what's the what's the probability that he's going to turn around and go back east to Colossae, which is presumably where Philemon is, the church in Colossae, go back there before continuing his journey on to Spain, which is what he told the Romans that he wanted to do. I want to come to Rome and visit you so that I can go to Spain. So there. Could have been written much earlier, which would be interesting that the language just would stick around for that long. Oh, the language about who Christ is. Yeah. Yeah. In Paul's in Paul's letters. Well, I think you even see that a lot of the language like Paul's not inventing this high view of who Jesus mm. is. Mm-hmm. That you see, especially in the way he picks up on some of the early Christian hymns, that the distinctive feature of early Christianity is the worship of Christ. 
Right. And so this high view of who Jesus is is really just part and parcel of early Christianity. Mm. That from the earliest days, they are worshiping Christ as Lord. Right. And so that what Paul writes here would be perfectly in line with what the early Christians believed. Mm. And he's just picking. So I think, you know, whether it's an early date or a late date, you know, whether this is in the 40s or in the 60s. Right. This is consistent with how the church is viewing Christ as an uh, as someone who is worthy of worship and right. is sharing in the very divinity of God Himself, mm. which is really remarkable. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about Paul, Hebrew of Hebrews, "Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." And yet, from that time that he encounters Jesus on the road of Damascus, he is worshiping Him as Lord, as yeah. Yahweh. Yeah, and so. This is just part of who it is for Paul to be a follower of Christ. Mm. And I think for the early church as well. Yeah. Uh, that Christ is to be adored and worshipped as God. There's that phrase in 14, Colossians 1, 14. Mm-hmm. And it, it's so similar to what he says also in Ephesians. Oh, I mean, it is, I'm, yes. I'm assuming most of our folks, because we've just come out of a series in Ephesians, when they, when they, when and if they have read Colossians 1, 14, either now listening to this when I'm about to read it, or the last few weeks reading through it, they may have been struck by the familiarity of it when he says, in whom Christ, the beloved Son, in whom, Colossians 1.14, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So it, it almost is, is as if from this statement he launches in to, Paul does, to a whole discussion about who Jesus is. Mm-hmm but really started by what Jesus has accomplished. And to your credit, John, earlier you, you pointed out how what Jesus has done actually, in a lot of ways, bookends or frames this uh, discussion of who Jesus is. So if Colossians 1, 15 through, uh, you know, through 20, 19, 20, whatever it is, um, is a lot of a description of who Jesus is, at least 20 says through him, reconciling all things to himself. What does it say in Colossians 1.20? Through him to reconcile mm-hmm. to himself all things in heaven and on earth. So that language of what Christ has accomplished in redemption and reconciliation of all things really seems to bookend who Jesus is. It does, and he, he goes on there in 21 that we were alienated and hostile, but now... We've he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That this we were alienated, we are hostile to Christ, and but in his body through his death he has reconciled us. But that that all seems in Paul's mind, you know, he could go from redemption to reconciliation, right? These two ideas, but he he sandwiches in between those who Christ is. And really, as fully God, that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creatures, all these things, that he's a creator, he's the head of the church, and him the fullness of God dwells. And it seems to me there's some link in Paul's mind between those two. And I, I think part of that is just the necessity of who Christ is as fully God and fully man and for his reconciling work. Yeah, That if Christ is not fully God and fully man, he is not able to accomplish this redemption. He's not able to reconcile us. Mm. 
So why why is Jesus's divinity so important for us? Why does that matter for our reconciliation and redemption? Well, I think in a lot of ways what you just said will is a good is a good uh, lead into that conversation because um, the only way for Jesus to accomplish for us what Scripture describes Him accomplishing is if He is God Himself. Mm. I mean, and that's always been from from the Old Testament on. God has been promising that there will be a rescuer, but there's always that understanding that this is going to be God Himself acting. And um, you know, certainly, I, I don't know that they could have anticipated exactly how this would have played out but that God himself would actually come in and step in and do the work that was needed to to rescue and redeem his people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I do think because of Jesus' identity, who he is as a person, um, he is God, and because he's God, he has the authority and the power to come and redeem and to save. Um uh, because he's God, he has authority even over death, and so that having been put to death on a cross, he comes back to life and and uh, secures our right standing mm-hmm. with God. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the two, I mean, it it goes hand in hand. It's as if to say, it it's hard to maybe pick which is a better place to start, like the chicken and the egg thing, you know, <laughs> but. In both ways, it makes sense. If this, if what Colossians 1, 15 through 19 is true about who Jesus is, it makes sense what he accomplished. Like, mm-hmm. if that's actually who he is, then, then the rest of his actions, I mean, it makes sense. But, you know, in the reverse way, it, it works as well to say, Jesus rescues me, he saves me, he forgives me, uh, he reconciles all things to himself. And you think, well, God, how does he do that? Well, because this is who he is, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it it starts to make sense what he's accomplished and what Paul claims he accomplishes when you understand his very identity, his nature. And that's a great point you made about in the Old Testament, it's just becoming clearer and clearer that God must act. Like, all these narratives show human failure. Like, humans cannot reconcile themselves to God. People are going to fail. And sort of every, every glimmer of hope it's tinged with human sin and failure. And so it's just clear over and over and over again that God has to act in order to save his people. So I think that's just such tremendous background to keep in mind that God has to act. And then, you know, as Hebrews will talk about, it's through the power of his indestructible life that Christ will save, that ultimately through his resurrection that death could not hold him, that he has power and authority even over death, like you said, that's how he's able to redeem. That's how he's able to reconcile. Yeah, that's right. Is he conquers sin and death through his own death, and death could not hold him. It's remarkable. So in one fifteen through nineteen, there are a lot of descriptors mm-hmm. of who Jesus is. Any of those? I, I mean, we could try to get to all of them today, but uh, it would probably be tomorrow before we finished. So how's that for a turn of phrase? Do you like that? We could get to try to get to them all today. But it would be tomorrow before we finish. That's good, wasn't it? Real wordsmith over there. Which one of these jumps out at you? If if we could say we can't get at them all, but some of them. Is there anything in there that you find maybe specially um, highlighted in your mind? 
I just think image of the invisible God is fascinating. Yeah. That he's the image of the invisible God. He Christ is the way that we can see God who cannot be seen. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot there's a lot there. Uh just about how we know God who Christ is, obviously, but then something about how we know God and then the way that ties into the fact that Genesis tells us we are made in the image of God. What does that mean about who we are in light of who Christ is? Mm-hmm. So can you explain that all to me? Can I will. You, uh, yeah. Who is Jesus? How do we know God? And what does it mean to be human in, in ha- light of that? In light of that. Wow. Yeah. Easy. Uh, you know. But we're only going to do it today, not tomorrow. And not tomorrow. Because you the said. day is still young and the night is early. Um, image of the invisible God. So, I think it's connecting to Genesis 1. I mean, in my mind, that's I see that, that direct connection of, of God's creation of man and his image. Mm. Uh, but Jesus is the image. Mm-hmm. And how I understand this is even as if to say he is the image in which man is created. Now, this verse... It, has been used historically to actually argue against the full divinity of Christ. You know, like even the language of firstborn, mm-hmm. right? Well, that he was born or created, some would argue, but that he is the image of the invisible God, and yet at the same time, all things were created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, all things were created through him and for him. Uh, that he is equated with who God is in his very nature. Mm-hmm. But as but to think that uh, God's creation of man is actually done with an understanding of Jesus Christ, who he already is, even though he is not yet enfleshed in the world. So, I mean, to me, when Christ comes, again, to kind of go back to what I was saying earlier, it make it helps me make sense of everything else the Bible has said thus far. Mm. When you read Genesis 1, and the this God who, who cannot be seen creates man in his image, and you think, well, what on earth does that mean? Um, well, certainly, you know, representatives or this sort of thing of who God is on the earth, and we get that picture. But then when you read in, for instance, Colossians 1, that Jesus himself is the image of the invisible God, you think, okay, well, now... God is revealing himself to his people through a person. Mm. And it helps it helps me make sense of what it would mean that we were created in that image, as if to say our very nature of who we are is intended to point to the true revelation of who God is as shown in Jesus Christ. And I think that's just a great reminder to ver- of what it means to be human, that you know, there's a lot of discussion, well, how— how can I be a Christian man? How can I be a Christian woman? And you say, well, well, you're made in the image of God. And what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, we have the perfect picture of that in Jesus Christ. So if you want to know how to live in this world as a God-honoring person who is made in the image of God, you look to Jesus Christ. And it strips away a lot of our cultural baggage about who we are, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. And you say, look at Jesus and live like Jesus. Yeah, that's right. Until Christ is formed in you. And I think that is really helpful to say, okay, this is 
this is who I am supposed to be as one, just as a person who's created in God's image, but also as one who is adopted into God's family, that I should look like the one who's the firstborn among many brothers. So just, there's just, I think, loads of practical implications for that. Yeah. About understanding who we are and how we're to live in this world. And to go go in, before we get into some of those practical things, which we may, but for me, 115, the image of the invisible God, and the very end of this section, that all the fullness of God, in verse 19, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Mm-hmm. I think it's that those two thoughts, to me, really capture we're, we as Christians today aren't um, saying something out of line with what Scripture is saying, that Jesus is God. Mm. And he is the fullness of God, and this is God come down and made himself known, the God who created this, I mean, the the God over all the universe, the only one and true God. This is Jesus, God come down to us in human flesh. Uh, so as if to say, all of God to us in Christ. Yes, and what remind, that he's not God Jr. It's not like, oh, there's God and then there's God Jr., Jesus, yeah. but the fullness of God, that he together with the Son and Spirit, are fully God, completely equal with one another, equal in power, worthy of all worship, equal in glory. Uh, just from eternity past, the three have been one and have been God together. And Yeah, he is in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So it's when, when you start to put these kinds of ideas together, you begin to see why some commentators will, will look at a text like this and say, this is some of the highest language that mm. you can attribute to Jesus because it goes it it goes all the way. I mean it says fully that Jesus is God, the fullness of God, God incarnate. He's the image of the invisible God. Uh, he's how we know God, reveals God. So all of this is describing who Jesus is and it's making sense of how he's been able to accomplish what he's done. It's a claim that I think we as Christians to get into some of the practical outworkings of this text. it This is one of those places in Scripture that I think we need to come back to often and remind ourselves that when we are making our witness and testimony known to the world, this is what we are declaring to the world. Mm. And it does set us apart because we make this emphatic declaration of who we know Jesus Christ to be. And when we do that, it clarifies our message, and it really puts, you know, I think in a lot of ways it could help remove some of the other, um, some of the other issues that may block folks or distract folks who are not Christians or may cause um, folks who are curious or interested in Christ or intending to not be Christians, the things they want to disagree with or have a conversation about that in a lot of ways, can be secondary if you just started and said, look, let me just, this is who we believe Jesus is. Mm-hmm. Let's just start here. Because if uh, if that's not sort of the fundamental understanding of what it means to be a Christian, then all of the other topics that may come up, in a lot of ways, might become far less relevant. Is this right. making sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think because often the objections or the pushback is are are centered on the the moral, the ethical implications of following Christ. But if you understand who Jesus is, you will do whatever he says. 
right? If you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, if you've experienced God's transforming love and grace, knowing who Christ is, then you will die to self, take up your cross, and follow him. You can't encounter Jesus, who is God, and not be changed. And so to your point, the rest doesn't really matter until you encounter Jesus. Yeah, because right. it's when you encounter Jesus that everything else falls in line behind that. Mm-hmm. That's what you see in the Gospels. That's what you see with the life of Paul. And that's what I think we as believers live and experience daily, is how our affections, our desires are all coming in line behind Christ mm. because we know who he is. Mm-hmm. He is our redeemer, our reconciler, who is God and has authority. He's head over all things for the church, the firstborn from the dead, and everything he is preeminent. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So I'm gonna take I'm gonna die to self and take up my cross and follow him because of who he is. It's really been helpful in a lot of my a lot of my evangelistic conversations because they would start on one topic and go to another and, and eventually I would just say, you know what, let me just let me just ask a question. Um, I would describe who we understand Jesus to be. Mm-hmm. According to Scripture, Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God, the Creator God, who's come down to rescue. Who do you say Jesus is? And it's a very, non, you can ask in a very non-threatening way, right? But just to... Well, look, you can. I, yeah. yeah, I got a little edge. But let's just get it on the table, yep. you know? with uh, Who do you say Jesus is? And if it's anything other than... God incarnate, mm. then you just know where the conversation needs to spend the lion's share of its time. Right. Let's just get back to defining and describing who this Jesus is. And how amazing is it that God himself comes to us? You think about, think about all the other world religions, a God who's far off, a God who speaks, a God who sends his messengers, and yet here... God himself comes to us. That's right. That he would humble himself and take on the very nature of a servant and be found in appearance as a man. And he would come to us, that we would know him. He would get into the dirt of our lives to be with us. Uh, the fullness of God, God himself. Yeah. So it's it's probably, you know, this is the highest Christology in the New Testament or one of the highest Christologies in the New Testament, some of the highest Christology. But that's probably the highest hurdle for mo- many people about the Christian faith is this idea that Jesus is God himself totally and agree. that exclusive claim. And yet, it is really probably the most shocking, astonishing, beautiful, you know, fill-in-your-adjective truth about our faith that God has come to dwell with us so that we could dwell with God. It's really <laughs> that God would come to us in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And it's no less astonishing then as it is now. I mean, that's the claim that you just, century after century after century after century, continues to be the emphatic claim of Christians to the world that continues to set us apart from what the rest of the world says. And I think we can get a lot of things wrong and still be Christians. We really can't get this wrong and be a follower of Christ. Mm-hmm. This has to be a a first order issue for us as, you know, for us in our church, but as we disciple our children, as we share the gospel, this is really, 
a non-negotiable. This may be the non-negotiable. Who is Jesus? Yeah, agreed. All right, I got to say one more thing. Can I say one more thing before we end? You're the boss. You can say whatever um, you want. Okay, one more thing. In verse 16, for those, maybe you're you're sitting there and you're not looking right at, at your uh, your Bible app or your your Bible, um, you're driving or whatever it is. 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That list that he rambles off there Mm -hmm. right at the end Mm -hmm. has really struck me the last few weeks as I've been reading through this and really thinking about this text, that all things were created. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, Mm -hmm. all these are created through Christ, by Christ, for him, that it just gives me such confidence in who Jesus is, that there is literally nothing in existence that exists outside of his creative work. And all of it is dependent on him for existence, and all of it falls under his dominion. And there is nothing that can thwart or change or take away from what Jesus Christ intends to do. He created He's the master. He created it. It's by him. It came through him. It's for him. He'll sustain it. He'll, he'll do whatever he wants to at whatever point he wants to do it at any time. And I just think that gives me such confidence in who Jesus is. Mm. That I can trust him because there is nothing in existence that is going to stop or sway what he intends to accomplish in this world, in my life, in human history, or for all eternity. It's all his. Gives me a lot of hope. Absolutely. Hopefully, it gives our listeners a lot of hope too. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, things visible. Even things invisible, it's all done by him. All right, John. Colossians 1.15. Let's just call it through 20. Uh, great text. It's possible. You talk about things that have outside chance being possible. I think it's possible that this was a hymn, early Christian hymn. I don't know. You just love dwelling in the world of possible. I don't know. You? Let's just say there's a chance. I don't know if it's a good chance, but, you know. It could be that this was somewhat of a uh, common repeated phrase or form that mm-hmm. uh, would have been passed around for a long time to a lot of different churches in the early days of Christianity. All right, John, Colossians one fifteen. anything else we need to know? Oh, there's so much more <laughs> we need to know. I think we may have taken it to the extent of our knowledge, though. So, <laughs> so hopefully you'll come back next time. One more in the wisdom from a pastor's heart. And when I say one, I mean two. It's possible. It's possible you mean two. I definitely mean two. And I appreciate you reminding me of that. All right. Well, it's good. We'll be back next time. And uh, can't wait to uh, check you out then. Thanks for your time, John. Thank you.